The AUA would like to thank Estellas for providing an independent educational grant in support of this webinar. The following activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To learn how to claim CME credits for your participation in this activity, or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auau.auanet.org. The goal of this educational activity is to update urologists and urologic care teams on the changes to the 2019 clinical guideline on the diagnosis and treatment of non-neurogenic OAB in adults, which discusses patient presentation, diagnosis, treatment, and follow-up of patients based on currently available data. The purpose of this guideline is to provide a clinical framework for the diagnosis and treatment of non-neurogenic OAB. At the conclusion of this activity, the attendee will have the following learning objectives. They'll be able to define the similarities and differences between the various pharmacotherapies for overactive bladder. They'll be able to review the principles of physiology and pharmacotherapy for currently available agents, including the antimuscarinics and the beta-3 agonists, as well as combination therapy. Furthermore, they'll realize the importance of setting proper patient expectations regarding treatment of overactive bladder and potential need for sequential and even additive therapies. They will also be able to analyze the clinical and potentially theoretical advantages and limitations of currently available agents and treatments and discuss potential future pharmacologic pathways and therapies for overactive bladder. Now it's my pleasure to introduce our two subject matter experts joining us this evening. First, Dr. Kathleen Kobashi, Professor of Urology and Chief of Urology at the Virginia Mason Clinic in Seattle, Washington. Uh, Dr. Kobashi is the sitting president of SUFU. Uh, and then the second expert is Dr. Sandip Vasavada, Professor of Urology at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland. Uh, Dr. Vasavada will be the incoming president of SUFU uh, in the next month. So I'd like to welcome you both. Uh, I, I'm planning to ask you some very difficult questions over the next uh, 40 minutes or so, and I hope that you can enrich our audience with, uh, with some excellent answers. We'll begin tonight's question and answers discussion with a review of the AUA SUFU guidelines. First question is directed to Dr. Vasavada. Dr. Vasavada, why did the AUA and SUFU decide to update this guideline? So every so often we have to review guidelines to make sure they're current. And in this case, there was some new data that had come out between the last guideline published in around 2015 and this most recent iteration, uh, especially as it went to combination medication therapy. And, and so we felt that it was worth uh, adding that to the past guideline and, and ultimately, again, to the uh, current amendment to it. I understand. Thank you. What, what's, what was the reason then for, for changing the name of the guideline to include the word non-neurogenic, the previous guideline didn't include that word. Yeah, I think that's a good point. You know, so we wanted to be a little bit more clear and, and descript as far as non-neurogenic. 
uh, although we simply use some of the same uh, less invasive to more invasive formats in terms of management, uh, even when the neurogenic patient, uh, there'll be a later guideline coming out on that. However, with regards to the non-neurogenic aspect, we wanted to be clear to the, to the uh, clinicians that uh, there are certain aspects of the therapies that could be considered as off-label and especially in a neurogenic situation. So we wanted to be really clear, uh, especially as it came to sacral neuromodulation therapies like that, that uh, in a non-neurogenic patient that was applicable, but not typically in a neurogenic patient, at least based on label. Thanks, thanks for clarifying. So, so tell me, what, what was, in, in briefly, tell me what the, re, what the process is for updating a guideline such as the OAB non-neurogenic guidelines? So, so whenever we have a, a past guideline, we look at, as I mentioned, anything new that came out. So we'll have a, a chair of the guideline who will then uh, assess uh, the current data that's available. Anything new will uh, pose a number of questions. In this case, I posed, I believe, 14 questions to the methodologist. And so we have a methodologist who does a, a very careful and um, extensive review of the literature and then they take that uh, those questions and ask it of us and and see if there's enough peer-reviewed literature to justify changes or uh, additions modifications to the guidelines and so once they do that we have a panel who, who then we uh, reviews all that and then we use that data and, and decide what's worth putting in uh, to the guideline and, and what's not i see uh we're going to spend much of this evening's call reviewing um, the previous guideline as well as the the uh, changes to this most recent update. But can you tell me what the sort of the major changes to this most recent update might be? Yeah, so the, perhaps the highlight and punchline to a lot of this was really the use of combination medication therapy. Uh, that was the main change between the last guideline and the current amendment. Um, we also wanted to reiterate some of the uh, algorithmic approaches to taking patients from less invasive to more invasive therapies, and not necessarily doing it always in a hierarchical fashion with some caveats that I think we'll cover today. Gotcha. So combination therapy and an algorithmic approach. But let me ask you a question for the, for the practicing urologist, uh, the majority of which uh, are listening to this webinar, what do, you what do you consider the most important for the practicing urologist with respect to these changes? Yeah, I think combination medication therapy should be considered as an option. Uh, I, we clearly did not want to mandate it. It's not mandatory, but I think it's something we should offer to patients uh, in select situations. Um, I think the other thing, as I mentioned, is not having to say that they have to be uh, treated in a hierarchical fashion from the least invasive to most invasive. And, and, and that was really specifically highlighting the cognitive issues that sometimes happen with the use of anticholinergics, which many of us would consider as second line therapies and medications, but that can have some side effects, especially for the elderly. So we wanted to offer the clinician uh, some flexibility in not having to stay uh, in the you know hierarchical fashion that we have it listed, and then lastly, you know, codifying uh, the stage or step four options, including you know diversions, that I think too many people were stopping at uh, at the step three, and perhaps not going appropriately in some cases to st step four. Uh, again, diversions in, in some patients where it may just be necessary. Again, albeit a few patients, I think it's necessary in some. Yeah, I think those are that. That's a, that's a wonderful uh, summary. I'm going to move on um, to 
segment two and explore uh, patient presentation, diagnosis, and, and first-line therapy. So Dr. Kobashi, in the updated guideline, are there any changes to the initial evaluation of the non-neurogenic OAB patient? Do we, are there any changes in cystoscopy or urodynamics in that initial evaluation or anything else that the clinician should know? So in the update, updated guidelines, there were actually no specific changes to the evaluation of the index patient. So um, the minimum workup is actually a history, a good history and physical examination and a urinalysis, and that's it. That's the minimum workup that's necessary. Further to that, uh, for instance, post-void residual uh, analysis, um, sending the urine actually for culture, uh, the utilization of any diaries or questionnaires is really at the discretion of the clinician. So that's additional information. Um, and there was a specific statement that, that states that cystoscopy and urodynamics should not be performed in the initial workup of the, uh, the index patient. And so that remains completely unchanged from the initial iteration of the guidelines. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Kobashi. Dr. Vasavada, one of the updates to the guideline emphasizes the importance of a new concept of these patient factors in the choice of therapy. Uh, that's, that's a new concept compared to the prior uh, guideline. Tell me what these factors are and can you explain how some of these factors might change clinical practice? In other words, uh, which you had alluded to earlier regarding the hierarchical treatment of these patients. Can you tell me about these patient factors and, and how they uh, impact uh, patient uh, choice of therapy? Yeah, so I think one thing we're learning more and more is the consideration of cognitive factors in so many of our patients. Uh, with this cognitive potential specifically of anticholinergic medications, we wanted to give the clinicians some flexibility to perhaps even avoid that selectively. And if they felt something like tibial nerve stimulation or another therapy was more appropriate, they can do that to potentially avoid the uh, you know side effects or, or harm that could come with uh, with cognitive uh, side effects that can come with medications. So we wanted to make sure that again, avoiding that hierarchical, uh, you know, least invasive to most invasive therapy mentality, and, and again, giving the clinician a little bit of flexibility to avoid these side effects. Thank you. Dr. Kobashi, how do you apply first-line therapy in your practice specifically? How do you introduce the concept of behavioral therapy for, for patients with overactive bladder and incontinence? Well, I think it's very important to start at the beginning. I talk to patients about the potential um, reasons why patients will have overactive bladder, one of the most common of which is, is dietary irritants. So things like caffeine, um, a glass of wine or a, a, a cup of coffee um, can really impact overactive bladder, particularly in patients who are susceptible to that. So we really start there and I explain to them that if they can avoid, they don't have to avoid it 100%, they should certainly be strategic about when they have a cup of coffee. If you're, I say to them, if you're getting on the airplane and you've got, uh, you've got the window seat, you don't want to get on with a big, large coffee. So really explaining that to them. Most of the time, patients really have an understanding of that. They've sort of figured that out already. Um, but also, alcohol can be um, a bladder irritant. So I counsel them not only on the fluid management, insofar as the type of fluids that they take, but some patients will come in with this idea that more is better, and they'll say, "Oh, I drink, you know, ten glasses of 
whatever fluid a day. So really to explain to them that, um, you know, limiting, limiting fluid to a, to a reasonable amount and then taking care to not, you not take bladder irritants is important. The other thing is behavioral therapy. So things like timed voiding, so retraining the bladder and utilizing um, urgency suppression techniques. So there are specific techniques that the patients can use that when the urge starts to hit, they can, you know, concentrate on, you know, what their foot feels like in their shoe or something to really um, uh, divert the attention a little bit. And those urge suppression techniques um, and things like quick flicks can actually be very helpful. So those are first-line therapies. I definitely counsel the patients on that. The other first-line therapy that is listed is physical therapy. So they can do all of this um, with sort of a personal trainer is kind of how I counsel them on that if they wish to do it with some extra guidance. So, so you introduce the concepts of behavioral therapy to your patients when you see them in the office, but who actually does it in your office? Is it, is it you? Do they come back to see you? Do they see a PA? Do they see an NP? Do they see a nurse? Is it a nurse visit? How do you do it in your practice, practically speaking? I mean, I think all of those individuals uh, would be excellent individuals to do this. But of course, and the nurses are very capable of doing this. And so usually in my practice, it's the RN most commonly, sometimes the PAs. Um, but they really enjoy also being an important part of this, the educational process. And I think they build a nice rapport with the patients and can really sit down and take practically speaking, a little more time with the patients than we can. So um, in my practice, it's usually the nurses um, first and then the PA second. And then how do, you, how do you talk to them about their success rates of these first-line therapies? There's, there's a number of therapies. Uh, patients are variably uh, compliant with the therapies uh, that we do uh, in, in, in uh, lower urinary tract uh, function and dysfunction. H how do you counsel them with respect to their rates of getting dry or better or what have you? Yeah, that's a little bit tricky. We don't usually quantify this because I think every person is different and the reasons for overactive bladder are different from one individual, one individual to another. So with that in mind, we don't usually put a number on this, but I think these strategies and these little conservative things can often be very helpful for some patients. How long do you mm -hmm. give a trial of behavioral therapy uh, uh, or first-line therapy. For example, when do you see the patient back? When do you declare that they're not going to be successful and we need to move on to something else? Yeah, you know, usually it's about four to six weeks, uh, depending on the practical practicality of how far away they're coming. Um, sometimes we'll touch base by um, portal or by phone, um, but usually I ask them to come back uh, about four to six weeks out. Fair enough. Uh, Dr. Vasavada, how do you communicate proper patient expectations regarding treatment of overactive bladder? We just heard Dr. Kabashi talk about that initial consultation for behavioral therapy. What do you, how, how do you counsel patients' expectations regarding their treatment and the potential need for sequential and even additive therapies? Well, I think it's, it's all about expectations, right? I mean, I think that's perhaps the main thing. Um, they have to realize that, you know, overactive bladder is a chronic condition. Uh, anything we're talking about with them does aim at management in terms of making it best for them. So whatever uh, adjunctive measures they need to use, as Dr. Kabashi mentioned, uh, a lot of the behavioral therapeutic aspects, they need to continually encompass that no matter what they do, be it medications or even third-line therapies. So they need to be considerate of that. Uh, you know, some patients may become totally dry, especially those obviously who are incontinent to begin with. Otherwise, if it's urgency and frequency, they may be improved. 
Uh, I think they have to be expected to improve. Um, but sometimes they'll be, you know, completely cured or 100%. And then they also need to know that if that doesn't work with simpler therapeutic measures, that they have other fancier measures, including second and third line therapies, which may be more uh, likely to move the needle for them. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. Dr. Kobashi, when you see an, an older patient, and, and, and as we know, uh, overactive bladder disproportionately affects older uh, individuals, what's your approach to treatment of overactive bladder in the frail elderly patient uh, with overactive bladder? That's a great question, Eric. I think, you know, again, it's very important to uh, really go over in detail the first-line therapies. They're very conservative. There's not a lot of potential for risk uh, in the first-line therapies that we've just outlined. Now, as far as second-line therapies are concerned, which are the pharmacotherapy, um, you know, anti-muscarinics and beta-3 agonists, things have changed rather recently because we do know that there are uh, potential risks of, uh, associated with each of these. Um, with the anti-muscarinics that would be you know, side effects like dry mouth, constipation, dry eyes, which can be problematic. But there's also a lot of emphasis nowadays on the potential con uh, cognitive effects and the potential link to dementia, which is obviously very concerning. So anti-muscarinics, um, honestly, I've, I've moved away from a little bit. I think short term, it's okay. But longer term, we just don't know you know, about these cognitive effects that can be concerning. As far as beta-3 agonists, I like to think that they don't really have any side effects, but you do have to monitor patients' blood pressures. Um, and it's particularly um, something that you want to be uh, aware of in patients I mean, it's a contraindication to put a, a patient who has uncontrolled high blood pressure on a beta-3 agonist. So I think that's important. And and whether or not you decide to do an anti-muscarinic or beta-3 agonist, you really do want to make sure you follow up with your patients and follow them carefully to make sure that they don't have any sort of post um, uh post-pharmacotherapeutic um, side effects that would be problematic for them. Fair enough. Well, I, I told you guys I was going to ask you some hard questions, and overactive bladder is a hard condition to treat uh, at baseline, and then I asked you to comment on, on the frail elderly. I'm going to make it even more complicated. Patients with overactive bladder frequently have a component of nocturia, which of course could be uh, multifactorial. Dr. Kabashi, what's your approach to the OAB patient with bothersome nocturia with respect to, say, the initial evaluation? How does that differ? Yeah. Well, I think uh, one thing that's very important, and this is clearly a, a place for voiding diaries to really assess what their fluid intake is, how much is coming out, what the timing of things are. Because if they're drinking most of their fluids when they get home in the afternoon from being out and about in the day, or they drink up until the time they go to bed, clearly that could be problematic. Um, so just looking sort of the volume in, volume out. I think also take the uh, timing of their medications is very important to consider. If they're taking diuretics, for instance, if they take it in the latter half of the day, clearly you're going to be producing your urine at nighttime. So a little bit of shift in that sort of thing can be helpful and probably very impactful in these patients, whether or not they have overactive bladder, um, actually. Um, I think the um, other thing to consider is, you know, their sleep patterns. Um, do they have sleep apnea. Uh, another thing is, you know, just fluid retention in the lower extremities. So I do tell patients they should, 
you know, get their legs elevated when they get home and get that fluid mobilized before they, we, what you don't want is for them to, um, the first time that they elevate their lower extremities for the day is when they retire for the evening, because all of that fluid will mobilize and turn into urine. So if they can get their feet up for a few hours before they go to bed, maybe watching the news or whatever, um, that would be great. And lastly, compression stockings, that sort of thing. So really behavioral um, uh, tips can be very helpful and uh, I think quite impactful for patients. Okay. Um, Dr. Vasavada, again, staying on the temporarily on the theme of, of uh, nocturia, what therapies would you recommend initially for, for treating the patient that you've now diagnosed uh, with nocturia with or without overactive bladder? Yes, so I think I'd, I'd really take everything that uh, Dr. Kabashi mentioned to heart. I think, you know, voiding logs can be very directional for our patients. I, I do really try to incorporate their primary care physicians because so much of this, I mean, we see these patients as urologists, but so much of this is a medical situation that I think oftentimes better control of their medical disease, be it uh, congestive heart failure, you know, fluid retention, as she mentioned, management of, uh, of their diuretic use and appropriate timing. I think these are such the factors so much more often than it is truly a, a direct bladder problem. Uh, that said, I think if, if they have a lot of day and nighttime uh, frequency, in other words, in combination, then we may incorporate some of the, the discussion points we've mentioned so far with, with overactive bladder therapies and medications. But if it's really isolated nocturia, this really goes into somewhat of a different direction. And again, that's where I think using uh, our, our primary care partners to help us uh, will oftentimes be more beneficial than just us managing it alone. Okay, fair enough. So we've 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 discussed some of the guideline changes, and we've discussed uh, some of the things in the guideline that's going that uh, has stayed the same, including the initial evaluation of the OAB patient. Let's start looking at uh, second line therapy uh, in the updated uh, guideline. So, Dr. Kobashi. Tell me what the relevant principles of physiology and pharmacotherapy with respect to currently available uh, agents for overactive bladder that are important for the practicing urologist or clinician uh, to be aware of. So uh, we kind of touched upon this a little bit earlier, um, but with the anti-muscarinic medications, I think we really have to think about the mechanism of action and the potential side effects because of this. So you know, the dry mouth and constipation and cognitive side effects such as somnolence or um, memory issues uh, and perhaps dementia now with uh, some of the new data coming out are very important to consider. Again, I think short term, if you're just using it short term, probably not as much of a concern, but longer term, I think that that really can have an impact, of course, on quality of life and overall um, you know, safety for the patient. Um, I think if you're stuck because of funding or something like that coverage and you, and you have to use an anti-muscarinic and you feel like you want to do some sort of pharmacotherapy rather than going on to more advanced therapies, um, I guess the best choice for an anti-muscarinic is going to be trospium. It's a quaternary amine, so it's a bulkier molecule, and in theory, isn't doesn't as readily pass through the across the blood-brain barrier as some of the smaller molecules like oxybutynin, for instance. So, if you had to use a, an anti-muscarinic, I would probably concentrate on or you know aim for trospium if that's covered. As far as beta three agonists are concerned, again, I think the biggest issue is the blood pressure issue. So, any patient who's got uncontrolled blood 
pressure, high blood pressure in spite of medications should not be put on beta-3 agonists. So, um, you know, well-controlled blood pressure, I think, is the, the most important thing. Um, this is the only um, beta-3 agonist that's available in the United States right now. So cost is a potential issue. And I always specifically say to my patients, if you go to the pharmacy and they charge you an arm and a leg for the medications, then just tell them that's okay. Because I've had patients that'll come in and say, I spent my whole budget this month on this medication. And I say, why'd you do that, um, Mrs. Jones? And she says, because you told me to. So I think it's very important for us to um, keep in mind um, that, that that potential um, out, you know, effect. So really, I, I give my patients this count coaching that if it's crazy expensive, then they can reshelve it. It's not a big deal. And we can move on to talk about other things. Dr. Basavada, tell me about some of the similarities and differences between the various oral antimuscarinic pharmacotherapies for overactive bladder. And, and what's Honestly, from a clinical perspective, what's your most important consideration in choosing one over another uh, today in, in the year 2020? Yeah, you know, it was interesting is back when we did the original guidelines, you know, around 2011 and 12, um, we have a, a fantastic scatter plot that really took all the data that was available on all of the drugs and basically plotted them. And what you saw with that is despite everything we talked about for years, the overall efficacy was about the same across the board. There might be some slight differences in side effects between one drug and another. I think we have to individualize that for our patient. Maybe there's a select group of patients who have some bowel uh, frequency. Maybe it's uh, a loose stools. So maybe I want to use a medication that may have a, a higher degree of uh, constipation as a side effect of that. Um, as we've certainly touched on several times now, cognitive potentials, especially with the anticholinergics, is such a real issue. And it's becoming more and more of a consideration when we talk about medication selection. So I think that's something we will oftentimes bring to light, especially in the at-risk patient, the elderly and others. Um, and lastly, I think, you know, as, as, as KK mentioned, you know, cost is such a huge consideration. If it's too unaffordable for someone, they're not going to take the medication. We already know that this whole medication class has been uh, challenged by, uh, you know, long-term compliance. Many patients stop taking their medications. And, and if cost is a factor, they're certainly not going to refill it. Um, and, and again, if, if it's an efficacy as well as cost, uh, you know, it's doomed to failure. So I think these are all some of the factors we have to consider when we, when we talk about medications. All good points, all legitimate points, uh, Dr. Vasavada. Dr. Kabashi, we now have uh, beta-3 agonists, or at least one currently, uh, Mir Begron. Um, with the changes to the guideline that we had mentioned earlier, has this altered your approach to the pharmacologic therapy for the OAB patient? I mean, it has for reasons we've touched upon already, and that is really the side effect profile being lower with the beta-3 agonists. Um, as compared to the anti-muscarinics that we had traditionally utilized. Um, I think uh, so far as we know, at current, um, with our current knowledge, there is no link to dementia, which has now come out in, in yet another um, paper that uh, makes, it makes it concerning for us to administer this long-term, administer uh, anti-muscarinics long-term to patients. Um, again, you have to monitor the blood pressure, make sure that we don't set off a high blood pressure and you don't want to give it to people who have a baseline high blood pressure. Um, and I think from what I understand, this has, uh, the beta-3 agonists have a lower tendency to precipitate urinary retention. The mechanism is different. The pharmaco um, 
the, the, the mechanism of action is different rather than blocking the contraction it actually stimulates smooth muscle relaxation. So um, it seems to be uh, less uh, concerning for precipitation of retention. So yes, I, I, I am pleased that we have the beta-3 agonist that we have now um, as an option. Yeah, they've really uh, changed uh, practice uh, for many of us, and it sounds like yourself as well, with vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis the original guidelines where we didn't have beta-3s uh, at the time the first guideline got published. Dr. Bashi, um, as, as brought up earlier, often these medications uh, don't work as well as uh, the patient would like. Um, how do you determine uh, when or if there's a potential need for switching oral medications? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, again, cost is probably the biggest dictator these days. Um, but if a patient doesn't do well on a medication after 46 weeks, um, assuming that they just they don't flat out not tolerate it, um, I think that switching over is a very reasonable option to another class. I don't think that, you know, in the past, we used to try another of the same family because we didn't have a beta-3 agonist. We used to double up on things in combination therapy. I think the only time that a combination therapy is going to be reasonable is if you use an anti-muscarinic together with a beta-3 agonist. Um, and, and or, you know, I usually just switch over monotherapy and just keep one one agent on the other. Before, before not moving on to combination therapy, just a quick question. question. You can help, you can help our, our, our listeners and uh, people watching. watching. Tell me how long has it been a trial of pharmacotherapy? I've got guidelines touched on that. But more practically, what is it now? Is it a trial? When do you see the patient back? You can hear me now. So uh, the original guideline, we didn't get so discretion to say what the appropriate limits of a pharmacotherapy trial was. But on the second version of the guideline, we thought that uh, somewhere between four and eight weeks was perhaps the best thing to look at a patient. Um, if a patient was, uh, you know, not doing well, then we may offer them collectively to change the medication or go on to another therapy uh, approach uh, for that patient. And then somehow or another, we follow them back up, either uh, you know, in the office, if you have the bandwidth to do that, or selectively, um, you know, have a patient uh, maybe do a telemedicine visit, which we're doing nowadays more often, or some way, shape, or form to, to do some form of follow-up for them. So let's move on to third-line therapies. Uh, Dr. Kobashi, when do you start discussing third-line therapies with your patients? So I actually start when I talk to them about first and second line therapy. So very early on now, and I'll tell you the reason why I do that. So basically we have this sort of um, care pathway. Um, the AUA and SUFU have a care pathway, and I think it's very helpful for patients to see where they're going. Um, so I talk to them about third line therapies when I introduce first and second line therapies. Um, the, and so basically what I say to them is, I'm not presenting this to you because I'm not optimistic that first and second line therapies won't be helpful for you, but I want you to know that there's something else beyond plan A if it doesn't fly for you. Um, and I think that's very important. So they maintain their optimism, don't get discouraged, and then don't sort of fall off your radar thinking that there's nothing else for them to do. So I kind of tell them, Let's see you in four to six weeks. And at that time, if this hasn't really taken care of your issue, we may talk about these in more detail, but I, but I introduce all of, all of the uh, third line therapies um, 
in, in rel relative detail, actually, not not you know totally in the weeds, but enough that they understand that they're not really invasive big deal procedures. So I think it's important to keep them you know um, optimistic and get them back into your office if if the treatment hasn't been helpful. And, and again, just to emphasize the overactive bladder guideline uh, changes it that uh, that underscores uh, the principles of non hierarchical care of these patients, we can move on uh, from uh, behavioral therapies uh, to more advanced therapies uh, without going through a, a sequential approach. Uh, Dr. Vasavada, how do you uh, counsel patients regarding the appropriate third-line therapy for an individual patient? We've got lots of third-line therapies to choose from, or at least a few. Uh, how do you counsel patients regarding uh, what, uh, what third-line therapy you would offer or what uh, they might like? Well, clearly we go over the risks and benefits of each one of these approaches. Um, you know, oftentimes there's some factor. Uh, I think patients oftentimes think that, you know, well, you try this one and then you go to the other, and if that doesn't work, you go to the last one. Well, I think it's so much more individualized now. Uh, again, going through the risks and benefits of each one of those therapies. If a patient's willing and able to make frequent visits, you know, you can consider tibial nerve stimulation in one of those therapies. Uh, if they're perhaps not able to do that, I think that would be a challenge. Um, as far as, you know, sacral neuromodulation approaches, you know, one of the big factors is, is at least at present technology, you know, the use of MRI. And if that was a factor that they need a routine or frequent MRIs for a variety of reasons, that would be a bit of a problem. Uh, they have to have perhaps a cognitive ability to, to evaluate and manage that device. Uh, so if they don't really have that, I think that's a challenge. And then specific to, you know, onobotulinum toxins and, and its use inside the bladder, if, if there's any factor that may affect emptying or they're at risk for that, I think that would be a bit of a, a problem. So, so we'd want to go through that. And, and if there's a potential need for self-catheterization in that patient population, then uh, that could, could be a deal breaker. So we have to go over each one of those uh, very much individualized uh, so, so perhaps less of a coin toss and, and perhaps more of an individual selection uh, basis. With that, uh, Dr. Kobashi, I'm going to put you on the spot. I'm going to say, what's, what's the optimal patient for, say, PTNS or the optimal patient for sacral neuromodulation uh, uh, or even uh, intradutruser uh, onobotulinum toxin A uh, or PTNS for that matter? What, uh, what, uh, what, uh, what, what is the optimal patient for each of these therapies? Well, I think there there are some patients that are going to gravitate toward one or the other. And I think so just taking that one by one, PTNS is a, a, a great option for patients who want a very conservative option. Um, certainly where I am in the Pacific Northwest, everybody likes really um, conservative, natural things. And PTNS is sort of like acupuncture. In fact, as I understand it, the first iterations were really based upon acupuncture theory. So um, that's a very nice option. There's nothing implanted in the body. There's nothing injected in the body. The only downside to PTNS is they have to come in and see you once a week for 12 weeks uh, and then monthly or so thereafter for maintenance. So it is maybe not the most practical thing for everybody, particularly if they live far away from you. So those are sort of the pros and cons of PTNS. As far as sacral neuromodulation, I mean, I mean, there are there is one set of patients that definitely would benefit from um, SNS over, say, onobotulinum toxin A, and that would be the patients who have dual incontinence. So if they also have fecal incontinence, which we're getting much better about asking the OAB patients if they also have fecal incontinence, it's, it's remarkable and surprising how many patients will have dual incontinence. They can benefit from sacral neuromodulation for both of those problems. Um, it really is, I think, the highest success rate uh, therapeutic option of all the three 
um, third line therapies. Um, the the downside is this MRI situation that uh, Dr. Basavada just mentioned that may or may not change in the near future um, with MRI compatible um, equipment. But for right now, it's only compatible with a uh, above the neck MRI if you need to have an MRI. Um, the battery life is five to seven years as we quoted. It may be um, a little longer than that with optimal techniques now that we've gotten just over the years as with anything, the technology has advanced, but our techniques have advanced also. And so if you, um, I think it's worth learning the optimal placement and, and that's being propagated now, but an optimal lead placement will, will put the lead closer to the path of the nerve and perhaps um, perhaps not uh, drain the battery as fast. So um, I think that's important. And, and and I think, you know, the downside is that it's a it's generally performed in a two-stage procedure, whether you do it in the office as a test or if you do it two-staged in the operating room. So the patients um, have to come back twice. But I actually think that that's an advantage because the patients get to, you know, test it out, take it for a test drive, see if it works before they end up with a device that's implanted in their body. So I guess the device implanted could be a pro or a con, a pro because they don't have to come back uh, every six months for an onobotulinum toxin A injection, which I'll talk to you about briefly in a moment, um, or every week for the PTNS, but they do have something in their body that could malfunction. Um, I've had some people, you know, slip and fall on the ice in the wintertime and they crack the lead, or if the battery um, uh, peters out early or if it gets infected, those sort of things. So that's that's uh, the issue with SNS. Um, and lastly, and briefly, um, on a botulinum toxin A, the, the nice thing about that is generally speaking, people will tolerate that in the office. And if they tolerate it in the office, it's with few exceptions, but some patients would prefer it in the OR. Um, but in the office, they can drive themselves. It's local anesthetic. They tolerate it remarkably well. Um, generally speaking, we will just make an appointment for patients to come back in about six months for another injection. The downside of on a botulinum toxin A is the potential for retention, precipitation of retention, which is temporary, um, and or a urinary tract infection, which can be problematic, but obviously treatable. So. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Dr. Basavada, another tough question for you. Um, do you generally discontinue pharmacotherapy when you move on to third-line therapies? If you have a patient on an oral anti-muscarinic and you move on to PTNS or Botox or Interstim, do, do you stop the medication? Yeah, so I actually do typically stop the medication. Why? Because oftentimes they were either not seeing, uh, you know, efficacy with a uh, second line management or perhaps it was side effects or tolerability. And so that's why they went on to the third line. That said, there's so many patients now who, you know, they want to get the maximal effect they can. And maybe they're getting, and I'll just make up a number, you know, 70 or 80% what they would perceive as success rate with their own, uh, you know, third line therapy. And then when you add, you know, maybe a, a medication back in, they might try to get another 10 or 15%. So, you know, I can't fault someone for trying that, but I think intentionally, there's a reason why we moved on to third line, either for lack of efficacy or because of side effect profiles from the second line management. So again, I, I wouldn't mandate it by any means, but I, I suspect patients do it, or at least they try it on their own. We, maybe we don't even know about it because they still have a pill bottle at home. So they might consider that that way. I, I imagine there's many of those, which brings me to my next question. Dr. Kobashi, is there any evidence that we should keep patients on pharmacotherapy and that might improve the outcomes of third line therapy when you use them in combination? 
Well, I do think if you think about the mechanism of action of these ver these different uh, modalities that we have to offer, they are different strategies. So in that way of thinking, it's not unreasonable to consider using these combination therapies because they're kind of flanking the problem um, using different strategies. Um, but again, I mean, you have to weigh a lot of the practical things, the side effect profile, the cost, the hassle factor for the patient, um, and really try to streamline and, and minimize the number of things that you're throwing at a patient all at once, in, in my opinion. Well, moving back to the guideline itself, the new guideline, there actually is a new category uh, in uh, in the guideline, and we and the guideline uh, authors termed this fourth line therapies, which includes urinary reconstruction, urinary diversion, augmentation, cystoplasty. Dr. Vasavado, why did the panel add this terminology? So I don't think if you look back at our original guidelines, you know, we were dramatically different. This isn't brand new. This is something that we mentioned in the previous guidelines, but I think we found that too many uh, practitioners were stopping at third line and then recycling between those three, you know, third line options. And, you know, there's probably a select group of patients who perhaps could appropriately move on to what we consider fourth line therapies, or again, uh, you know, diversions, you know, maybe it's a suprapubic catheter, maybe they do need an ileal conduit or some form of diversion. Uh, again, it's, it's an infrequent occurrence, I will submit that to you, it's, it doesn't happen often, and most patients may not be optimal candidates, but I think in a select group, they would need to be con considered as a candidate. So we, we, we thought it would be worth codifying that as, a, as an additional step. Uh, that we somewhat minimized or were kind of de minimis in our, our approach to it and the original guideline approaches and the first two guidelines. Yeah, certainly in the in the non-neurogenic population, these fourth line uh, therapies have always uh, been rarely ever used. And uh, I, I suspect to a large degree and, and, and uh, uh, in the upcoming neurogenic guidelines, uh, there'll be much more discussion of some of these fourth line therapies in that patient population. But uh, in general, in the non-neurogenic population, Dr. Kabashi, when should the clinician utilize these fourth line therapies? So um, keeping in mind that these, this is a big step. I mean, you're going from minimally invasive percutaneous types of procedures or, or injections, you're going to a large reconstructive procedure that's going to be an inpatient, um, rather not a, an extensive, but several days of inpatient stay. Um, I think that we really should reserve it for patients who are, you know, at the end of the line, um, really very tough um, sort of bladder cripples, patients who are not uh, responding to anything and are really having a huge impact on their quality of life. But that has to be only after first, second, and third line therapies have failed. And with very careful um, and detailed counseling of the patients to, um, to discuss the risks, benefits, and alternatives. Thank you. Thanks. Um, let's take a quick look at um, potential future therapies for overactive bladder. Say, uh, you know, what's on the horizon? Dr. Vasavada, what do you see as the most promising pharmacological or drug therapies on the horizon? Yes, yeah, so I think there may be some ultimately some novel classes, but right now, anything that I know of coming out soon, um, there's some interest in another beta-3. Uh, I think there may be some option to uh, improve the uh, speed of onset of this with a few other benefits that may be conferred with another one of the beta-3s. 
I think clearly, you know, the more competition, the better. I think clearly that's going to be an option for more patients and hopefully uh, allows better access to this class that's that's really perhaps revolutionize the therapy, at least in second line therapy of, of overactive bladder patients. Dr. Kobashi, we're all surgeons. We like to operate. That's what we do. Um, what do you see as the most promising surgical therapies that uh, that are out there that aren't quite approved yet uh, that we as the practicing clinician surgeons might see coming up? What do you see as the most promising surgical therapies? Well, I do think, um, as we've sort of talked about a little bit, is this potential for an MRI, a full-body MRI-compatible um, neuromodulation device. I think that's going to crack the nut wide open. There's a lot of patients who are, are limited from having neuromodulation right now because of that limitation. Um, so that's going to change the landscape. Um, the other thing is there are, are, are several um, novel neural targets that are being looked at right now by several groups, and I think that that might change things. Um, the rechargeable potential might change uh, the playing field for some patients. Some patients may prefer a rechargeable battery versus one that um, you have to come back and change every um, five to seven years. And lastly, I think potentially, again, this is in the distant future, is potentially um, you know, some tissue engineering, some scaffolding, you know, creating some new um, tissue that can be utilized to perhaps augment the bladder or replace the bladder in those patients who are um, having, who, who have problems with overactive bladder. Yeah, so those are all uh, big thoughts and, and uh, non-office-based procedures. Dr. Vasavita, what do you see as some promising office-based therapies for, for overactive bladder uh, in the coming years? Yeah, this is this is clearly the big push, right? Because we want to stay as much in this therapeutic class out of the operating room as possible. I think there's been clearly an interest in that. Uh, so, is there an option to take some of the neuromodulatory therapies into the office? I think clearly uh, an implantable tibial uh, therapy is is one of the more interesting ones. Why? Because we've seen uh, success with tibial nerve stimulation. With the downside that Dr. Kabashi mentioned, which is the frequent need for for visits. Uh, that it, potentially an implantable therapy at the same target may be beneficial. Uh, there's another novel approach that's somewhat of a, of a, a bit of throwback uh, from, from something 20, 30 years ago, which is looked in the subtrigonal plexus where or neuromodulation or even uh, ablation of that area in terms of the nerves could perhaps uh, achieve success. So that's another uh, novel approach that may not have an implantable uh, device but rather maybe an office-based therapy that could be done that could you know, still pertain for, for moderate to longer-term uh, therapeutic benefit in this uh, you know, rather challenging patient population. Dr. Kobashi, do you think these exciting therapies, uh, the ones that you discussed, the ones that Dr. Vasavita discussed, do you think they'll replace our current armamentarium or do you think they'll be additive? Um, I think most are going to represent advancements on the current modalities that we utilize. Um, and um, I think the basic theories are going to remain the same, but they're going to represent advancements um, that will be that will build upon what we have um, developed as a foundation for our knowledge now. Dr. Vasavita, do you anticipate, uh, given all these exciting new developments, new drugs, new surgeries, new office-based therapies, do you anticipate that this non-neurogenic OAB guideline will be updated again in the foreseeable future? Uh, and, and if so, what's the time frame there? 
Yeah, it's a good question. I, mean, I do anticipate another guideline update. Um, you know, it's, it's so much uh, predicated on what kind of uh, new technologies or new data is available. We always want to make sure that there's, uh, you know, good, high-quality data that becomes available. And, and that really it's something that's going to you know, change appreciably the guideline in terms of a management, uh, not necessarily another Me Too, but something with a, a, a novel aspect. As we showed with this last update with combination therapy, there was da uh, data available that wasn't available for the prior guideline. If there's new therapeutic approaches, uh, we, you know, we'll certainly want to incorporate that. Uh, but we want to make sure it's high quality. We have to reassess every one of our guidelines. It's done with all of the AUA guidelines uh, periodically to make sure they're current and, and uh, you know, pertinent to what uh, you know, today's day and age has in terms of practice. So we have to reevaluate these things. And, and, and no question in the same uh, overactive bladder space, we will repeat uh, the same assessment uh, in the future. I want to thank our outstanding uh, faculty uh, Dr. Vasavada and Dr. Kobashi. Uh, I'd like to thank the AUA and, and Estellas for their support of this program. Uh, thank you and I wish you all a good night.